Hey everyone, welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. I'm Kim. And I'm Joanne. If you're a dietitian listening to this episode, you may already be familiar with the term anti-diet culture. If you're not a dietitian and this term is new to you, then this is one episode that you want to listen to. Today on the podcast, we have a candid conversation with registered dietitian, Christina Johnson, who works with disordered eating, eating disorders, and intuitive eating. She practices from a weight-inclusive and person-centered approach. She is deeply rooted in social justice and the health at every size framework. Christina has spoken internationally about the perils of diet culture and why we need to broaden our understanding of body image. Welcome to the podcast, Christina. We are so happy to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So how about you let our audience know a little bit about yourself and what your interest, what got you interested in the anti-diet dietitian movement? Yes. So as you said, I'm Christina. I'm a registered dietitian based in Dallas, and I primarily split my time between working in eating disorders and doing um, a lot of intuitive eating work, uh, not just with uh, white people, but with people of color as well. And I think the thing that got me interested in the anti-diet movement was I was in grad school and I had this sort of existential crisis where I realized if I had to be a weight loss dietitian, I needed to find another career because I just couldn't do it. Like I hated putting people on diets, knowing that um, the the guilt and shame that came with being on a diet for most of the people that I knew at any point in my life. So I was like, okay, uh, this just is not, I don't know if this is the career for me. And I'm not a quitter, so I couldn't quit the degree that I was already in. Mm-hmm. So I had to finish it, even though I was like, I was a year in, I was like, well, you got to finish it, homie. Like, there's no, there's no way around this. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to finish this degree. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And as I was finishing my degree up, I was like, well, I can go into the space of eating disorders because I really enjoy working with people who have, um, who suffer from eating disorders. And I was like, okay, well, if I can do that, then I can make a career of this. I can make a go out of it. So while I was in my internship, the university that I did my internship required that I take an extra uh, semester of classes. They made me do a second capstone. And then I also had, yeah, I know, a second capstone, right? Like the first one, that first 25-page paper wasn't enough. I got to do a second 30-page paper. (laughs) Okay, thanks. (laughs) Um, So I had to do a second capstone and I did a course on research methods. And so uh, for someone who's already completed a master's at that point, I was twiddling my thumb. Right. Like, like I, my master's was complete. Like I have my, my, like my hood, right? Like it's complete. It's, I had the degree in the tube with me while I was working on the second capstone. Oh no. So I'm twiddling my thumbs, twiddling my thumbs. And I was like, well, let me make a professional Instagram to do something to fill my time. And that's where I found the anti-diet movement. I'd already had this sort of thought about like, well, what if we didn't put people on diets? That was percolating in the background for me, but I didn't have words for it at the time. So when I joined Instagram as a professional, that's really where I was like, okay, there's a whole thing here. Like I really can make a full career out of helping people find health without having to make them do anything in particular that would create guilt or shame for them. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and and I when I was in school, I don't remember seeing anything about anti-dietitian, diet dietitian movement happening back then. So it's something that's very recent. I know that for sure. So Christina, go ahead and clarify for us so that, you know, everyone listening is on the same page. What exactly is the anti-diet movement and what role do dietitians play in that movement? I know you alluded to it a bit, but go ahead and expound Mm -hmm. on that. Yes. So when I think of the anti-diet movement, it is, um, 
more succinctly uh, understood in the context of health at every size and that you can't really divorce those two. Those two are a married idea and that someone can uh, pursue health if that is what they choose to do. Because I think the first thing that's really important for us to remember as health practitioners is my clients don't owe me health. That's not a transaction as a part of our uh, therapeutic relationship. And so when I remove that particular lens of like, they have to perform health for me in order for me to feel like I'm a good clinician. Um, then it becomes the context of, okay, well, how can I help my client pursue health and whatever they are defining as health? So maybe I'm working with a client and we can talk about particular aspects of food, but I might also be saying, hey, are you getting enough sleep? What is your sleep like, right? Like these other pieces of health that are related to what's going on. And so when I put it back in that context, then it becomes, how can I help you make food decisions based on your uh, your particular needs and not, you know, the overall general needs, but your specific needs based on where you live and what you uh, value in your life, how can I help you do that in a way that does not create shame or guilt or makes you feel like you're on the hamster wheel of diet culture? Um, that to me is the, the overarching theme of what it means to be an anti-diet dietitian. So it's not... so. You know, just to summarize it from my understanding. So it's not simply about the foods that are being, you know, ingested in your system. It's about your lifestyle, your stress, your sleep, um, physical activity, if that's lacking or if you have one. So it's not really about, you know, what what the scale says. It's about the holistic person. Yes, the holistic person encompassing uh, different parts of their identity. So let's say I'm working with someone and they're disabled, helping them seek out health in the midst of their disability or in the midst of their chronic illness, in the midst in the midst of their mental illness, right? Like not divorcing those ideas and saying that the only thing I care about is what the scale says, but that's probably the least of my worries. I'm concerned about all these other pieces and how they're interacting. And then uh, the social justice piece of it is what what are the systems around you that are not allowing you to thrive in a way that you could thrive wow. if those did not exist or were not uh, structured in the way that they are. I'm glad that you said that. I think, honestly, you're the first, I'm just going to call it ADD, anti-dietitian, that I have heard say that because when we look on social media, it's pre I mean, Joan and I talk about this all the time. Like, what are we talking about? Like, right. yeah, you can have the extra piece of cake. Like, what is that? Like, right. I'm not getting it. Like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. But I think you're the first dietitian I have heard say you're looking at the holistic being. Right. You're, you're not just looking at eat the extra cake, eat the extra cookie. You know what? I'm going to shut up because I can keep going on and on about that. And that's exactly what I thought when she was speaking. I was like, okay, so it's the holistic picture that we're working with here, not just have a cookie for breakfast, have that three <laughs> or four slices of pizza that you want for lunch. Okay. Okay. Now I'm, I'm getting a little bit better understanding of this. Um, so in your thinking, would you say there's a difference between body positivity movement or body liberation and the anti-dietitian movement, the ADD movement? Yes and no, in that those words mean specific things. You can liberate someone with uh, body liberation is more along the political lines in terms of what does it mean for someone to be able to access different uh, systems without oppression, right? So body liberation, allowing someone to go to the physician without being weight shamed or experiencing mm -hmm. weight stigma, someone being able to... Uh, 
purchase clothing without having to go to a separate store, right? So I've been sitting here thinking about the idea of separate but equal as it relates to clothing, right? We understand in terms of education, separate but equal is inherently unequal. Right. So if we look at clothing and say separate but equal, well, why are you stuck going to a particular store where the clothing is oftentimes more expensive? And depending on the size of your body, your clothes still aren't in the store. You still have to shop online. So you went out of your way to go to a specific store, but then you still couldn't get what you needed. You still you felt you felt othered. You felt pushed out. So if we have a body liberation space where people don't feel pushed out, they don't feel othered. That is very different from body positivity. Body positivity in its current iteration is uh, is aesthetics, right? It is saying that I'm allowed to enjoy the way that my body looks versus in being able to allow my body to exist without being shamed for what it is. And that is neither of those, I think, can really be divorced from anti-diet when you stop and say, okay, again, that systemic piece of what am I not allowing you to, uh, how am I not allowing you to thrive, right? If we're looking at the aesthetic piece of it, we could talk about colorism, texturism, featureism, right? That is an aesthetic thing, but it has a role in in racism. It has a role in uh, systemic oppression. As a dietitian, if I'm helping you work through your body image, I need to look at all of those things. I need to look at what it is that you're eating, but also how do you interpret your body just as it, the space it takes up in the world, but then also how do you interpret your body and the system that you exist in? Are you ever going to feel comfortable with your skin color when you're constantly told that it's not okay? Mm-hmm. And that impacts people's decisions on how they choose to feed themselves. If you feel like, well, if I can't win here, maybe I can win by changing my body. Mm-hmm. So basically, are you trying to get on a diet, lose weight because you dislike your body and you're you're hating the way you look right now? Or are you looking at your diet and what you eat because you're trying to live a healthier lifestyle and get, um, you know, follow a wellness journey? Yes. And in, in, in no uncertain terms, yes. So I know that you read the, I guess, pros, the clap back. I don't know what to call it. I don't know what to call Mikey's article. I think of it as a think piece, as a, a space to to uh, an invitation for conversation, if you will. I like that term, an invitation to conversation. I know you read you read what Mikey wrote in regards to um, how certain dietitians, which re- which will remain nameless, um, you know, portray the anti diet diet movement, the anti diet dietitian movement. So, do you think social media correctly portrays what it's about? And on top of that. Do you think white dietitians versus black dietitians in this space are looking at two different things? Mm. Like the aesthetics versus the separate but equal type of colorism, futurism mentality? I think in terms of uh, white dietitians versus dietitians of color, I think inherently they're going to be looking at it very differently. It is difficult to get someone who in most cases, experiences very little oppression. I'm not going to say that they don't experience any, but in most cases, experiences very little oppression, especially as it relates to the way that they look, right? They're going to have some oppression in the fact that they are a woman or identify as a woman, yes, but in like that oppression is not, uh, it does not, uh, not necessarily equate to, but it does not reach the breadth of, of oppression, as you say, I'm a woman and I am Black and I am in a fat body and I may have some other marginalizations, a chronic illness, whatever, right? We started, we started adding commas there and that increased that oppression. And so when I think, okay, realistically speaking, those two communities are going to have completely different conversations around what it means for you to, uh, to not pursue diet culture, for you to eat intuitively, I think, 
I think we may be forgetting the purpose of social media and that social media is a, a social platform. It's a place for us to connect as people. It is not necessarily meant for education and it's most certainly not meant for nutrition advice on an individual level. And so I think if we, we put that back into context, we can say, okay, I think that if we think of social media as maybe an ad platform for this particular movement, I think it's doing a, a relatively decent job of being a great ad, right? An ad is supposed to sell you something, an ad is supposed to draw you in. But ultimately, when you, you go into this thing, you're going to learn more about it. It's like a brochure almost, right? You can get the brochure for the university, but you're not really going to know anything about the university until you go and you enroll in the class and you make your way through the program. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. That does make sense. It makes sense. But for me, when I think about it, um, you know, us who are in the field, um, you know, we may see it that way. We may think of, you know, there's more to just a post that you see someone make. But the layperson out there, I feel like, especially people who can't afford to go to the doctor or afford to get a dietitian, they are seeing it as education. We know how many people come to us and are like, I found this on Google or I saw this on social media. So for them, that post is a form of education and they're going to see it and run with it. They're not going to think about, um, well, there's more that could, you know, potentially be said behind this one little post that I see. And I think that's where there may be issues that arise especially when it comes to white um, anti-diet dietitians making just like general statement posts of eat whatever you want, whenever you want, and not thinking about, yeah, there are people that may be reading this that may just take it and run with it. And although, you know, like you just said earlier, um, social media is not meant to educate person on a one-on-one -on -one level, it people who are reading and watching, they're going to take it or they may take it that way. Yes. And I think that that says more about the individual than it does about the person posting that particular thing. Right. Like I can read plenty of things and know that they're not for me or they weren't necessarily directed at me or I have enough um, understanding. And this was prior to any sort of formal education. Right. Remove the bachelor's degree, remove the bachelor's degree. I can read something and know that that probably does not apply to me or I need to do more information, uh, uh, do more research to learn something about that particular thing. Um, and I and not all dietitians do a great job of of capping something saying um, this applies in this particular situation. And again, I think that that plays more into their uh into the privilege that they have as a person, not having to think about any particular thing, right? Now, if I go on and I post something, I might cap something in there and say, especially since I know I split my conversation between intuitive eating and eating disorders, I'm going to cap something really quickly and say, unless you're coming from a restricted background, if you're coming from a restricted background, you have a completely different directive to help you get to this place. But if that's not where you're coming from, then you can you can start from here. And so maybe that means that we need to go back to the drawing board on what it means to uh, have a a productive conversation. But I think that um, ultimately, I think that we can make that statement. Um, you can have what you would like to eat with some understanding of eventually your body's going to regulate itself, right? Because I think what we're, what we, um, this, the conversation keeps stopping at is eat whatever you want when you want without looking at the other nine principles of intuitive eating, because there are nine other principles. Mm -hmm. And the 10th principle is gentle nutrition, right? So we bring back the idea of why it's important to have whole grains, why it's important to have fruits and vegetables, why it's important to have um, protein, why it's important to have uh, different sources of fat, right? We bring that idea back, but we bring it back once we have removed the idea that you are bad or wrong or make poor food decisions 
um, in the context of diet culture. But first, we have to divorce ourselves from diet culture to be able to look at food from a neutral standpoint. You know, just to backtrack a little bit, when you were speaking, Christina, about, you know, it goes back to the health practitioner or the person rather, not the health practitioner, to, you know, instead of making these blanket statements, like, you know, you know, I've looked at your social media feed and I see, you know, you are very careful with your words and you do divide. I'm, I'm referring to intuitive eating. I'm referring to um, eating disorders, things of that nature. And I'm also thinking of another dietitian who always says on her social media, disclaimer, this is not health advice. Um, because going back to the general populations that we serve, it's not even about functional literacy. It's about health literacy in general. People's health literacy is just so low and so poor. And I feel as if, you know, people do take social media as, well, you know, this is my, my Instagram doctor. This is my Instagram dietitian. And I wish, you know, seeing, you know, speaking with you, you're very cognizant of what's going on in social media, but there's also, I feel, other anti I'm not, this is not not bashing anyone this is just you know Kim is just being raw she's being real she's being vulnerable there's other anti-diet dietitians out there who are not in tune with you know the following that they have and how any little thing that they do could trigger an eating disorder or could trigger um you know a whole cascade of events that would lead to a chronic illness so, you know, I feel, you know, as you said, you know, Mikey's piece was definitely an opening front to have these conversations. And, you know, I'm not on Facebook or anything. Um, but, you know, what what have you been seeing since Mikey's prose on diet culture and fat politics and body liberation? Has that conversation been opened up within that community? I think it's a conversation that we have pretty regularly. I think we just do a good job of having it behind closed doors. Um, for the most part, I think, uh, when I, the day that I shared that article, I got a few, uh, DMs from some white dietitians that were along the lines of, well, this isn't fair. What am I supposed to do? And I always go back to, and I, I talked about this, uh, on a panel once where I can put liberation on a box of tissues. That does not mean that the box of tissues liberated anybody, right? Like no one was liberated by that box of tissues. So, I and I don't know if it's always apparent. I've made a very active and conti- will continue to make the active choice of not putting my own personal body on the internet because nobody's going to be liberated by my particular body, right? It is conventionally attractive. Um, my skin tone is not one that most people would consider deep, dark, or rich. If we are going to use any of those words, um, I also um, am not disabled. I'm able-bodied, right? Like there's so many privileges that I have in the context of the conversation. I don't exist in a fat body. Nobody's going to look at me and say you're a fat unless you're looking at me in the context of dietitians, in which case some people would uh, proceed to call me fat. And I'm like, well, you might want to reevaluate what you define as fat because you're you're missing a whole group of people, right? But if I, I've actually continued to make that choice of not putting my body out there because no one is really truly liberated by my body unless they have a, a similar body type. But in the context of like body liberation, my body can't liberate very many people. So it's not for me to put my body out there on the internet. And so when I, when I get those DMs, I think like, oh, you're missing the entire message, right? Like, I'm not saying that you aren't allowed to to celebrate your body. You are not allowed. It's not that you're not allowed to be proud of it or to be ex- to be uh, forthcoming with it. It's that 
Your body, the body that the system already praises, cannot provide liberation. Liberation can only come from things that are not praised, things that are pushed out to the other side, right? And and I think that that's the piece that continues to be missed. But I think the the article has done a great job of of inviting people into conversation to continue to to dive into what it really means to to uh, pursue body liberation, fat liberation, uh, both structurally, like not on the internet, but then also on the internet. Mm-hmm. So, would you say, um, you know, we've talked about racism being a problem within ADD movement? Would you say that colorism is a problem as well? Um, as a like a secondary function to racism, right? And if we remember how an algorithm works, then we're going to say that algorithms praise things with good lighting. It's going to praise things with proportionality, things that are more closely related to the Eurocentric beauty standard, right? Our proximity to whiteness. So if our, our algorithm is based on proximity to whiteness, then of course that the, the algorithm is going to, going to uplift people with lighter skin tones. Of course it's going to uplift people with more Eurocentric, uh, beauty features. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's really the conversation to be had there so much more than like, because within the communities of people, they're going to uplift whomever is has the most correct message. They're going to uplift whomever has um, the message that is the most liberating, right? Like I can look within my groups of people and see people with completely different uh, varied skin tones, but those aren't going to be uplifted within the algorithm because the algorithm praises proximity to whiteness. Right. So, you know, we were talking earlier about how dietitians post and how different people read them, how they may perceive and receive whatever is posted. Do you think it's up to us as dietitians? And I'm, of course, included in that. When I think of how I post, I'm always in my head of how people are going to read it, how are they going to perceive it, and who it can, in fact, can it cause any harm, I guess. And so do you think as dietitians, as dietitians that are within the ADD movement, should we all be more careful and not careless in how we post. I'm curious about the harm that you're implying that the anti-diet movement is going to do. No, 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 no. I, when I was um, speaking of harm, I was talking in general, not just the ADD movement. I was talking in general as health practitioners who post online. When I'm posting, I always think about like, okay, if somebody read this, are they just going to take it and run with it? Can it cause any harm? So I make sure I read my post to make sure that it doesn't do that. So I wasn't speaking about the ADD movement in general when I made that specific statement. But what I'm saying in general for all of us health practitioners um, and within the ADD movement itself, should people be more careful in how they post? Especially when you are thinking of um, people who have uh, who may be higher higher at risk for certain comorbidities, and and I know I'm thinking to myself now. I know certain people who may be listening to this may say, "Well, my followers are not African American; they're not minorities. Like majority of my followers are white people with money, or I don't know." White people have chronic illness too. Right. White people have some of the highest blood pressure I've ever seen in my life. Like, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, white people have diabetes too. I think healthcare practitioners who, oh gosh, I think that's a hard question to answer because I think it's really the intentionality behind it, right? So the person who's intending to bring good to the community they're already thinking about who can be harmed by this message, right? It's the person who's not intending to bring good to the community. It's the person who's sincerely doing this that is being driven by money. That's the person that we need to be concerned about. Because I can think about plenty of internet uh, doctors <laughs> Say that. who peddle off the most obscure and just absolutely outrageous advice and they're ta- 
taken as, uh, you know, uh, credible because they're a doctor. Mm -hmm. I would want to call the medical board and say, hey, yo, you might want to get your physician because they out here wilding in these streets, these Internet streets. But (laughs) I think that's the conversation to be had of like, how do we teach people to discern between someone who actually intends good for the community versus someone who is driven by money versus someone who is driven by their bottom line? Because you can you can quickly tell the difference if you know what you're looking for. Yeah, and that's true. And I think, you know, that is so hard to differentiate. Honestly, if it wasn't for Mikey's article, I would have had no clue that this was even going on in the ADD community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely no clue. Because as you stated earlier, these conversations happen behind closed doors. She just used her platform to bring it to light for everyone. So, you know, and I think, you know, as you said, the word, the key word that you used, it goes back to morals. And, you know, we all need to check ourselves and examine, you know, what is really our driving force is our driving force to create a platform to help individuals with or without chronic diseases to make, um, you know, health decisions, holistic health decisions. Or is it about putting a price tag behind a program and, you know, showing your quote unquote roles? So, you know, with that being said, Christina, you know, I want us to, you know, close off with this final question. I want you to define for us, you know, the morale, the moral value of food. Like, what does that mean to you? The moral value of it? Food doesn't have moral value. I, as a person, have morality and I apply that to my food decisions. Right. So the carrot has no moral value. Um, Cupcakes have no moral value. I apply morality to them. I can determine. Mm -hmm. I can say that that thing is good or bad, but I need to be careful about what what value I'm assigning to it. Am I saying that this thing is not the best decision for me to make in this moment? Because there are times where that's not going to be the best decision for me to make in that moment, but that does not make the food bad, right? The food could have gone bad, meaning it was expired out of date the food was moldy now that's bad and we can we can all agree upon that right you shouldn't eat food that has expired you shouldn't eat food that is moldy Mm -hmm. but the actual food item itself as long as it is not uh out of date as long as it's not something you're allergic to there is no moral value to that right like the because morality Mm -hmm. implies absolute good it implies that something is without flaw food is not absolute good without flaw it's food it, it, it just, it, it exists. It can't talk back to us. It doesn't make decisions, right? So the food itself has no moral value. It is what morality I apply to it, knowing that you and I might have different morality and, and that's okay. And that's going to come out in our food choices. If we apply morality to our food choices, the key point of, of a non-diet dietitian is that we do not apply morality to our food choices for the most part, unless we are applying our ethics to, I believe that it is not um, the best thing for me to um uh, consume something that was made in an unethical situation, right? Like if I'm looking at sustainable farming practices or uh, animal welfare or something like that, right? That's my ethics, my morality and the food choice, but the food itself still remains neutral. So do you think conventional dietetics teaches that food has morale? Of course, right? If you look at what we've created as a career in that um, I remember I went to Fancy last year and there was an entire thread about this dietitian that was upset that they would allow donuts at a at a breakfast and I think to myself like okay but you don't have to eat the donut right like nobody said you had to eat that donut that's your choice but how can you say that we are being a bad dietitian by allowing people to have donuts with their coffee at breakfast you're an adult you can make a decision like you can't speak for the entire field and your food shaming that you just did that's food shaming what is that? How does that impact people? Right. If I as a dietitian am not allowed to have a donut whenever I choose to have a donut, who really is? What about saying um, foods that are better for you or or 
best to consume. Is that, would that be considered as a moral? No, in terms of you're saying that this thing has more nutritional, this thing offers more nutritional value to you, right? All food has nutritional value in some way, shape or form because it offers you carb, fat, protein. But something may be more nutrient dense in that it offers you more micronutrients, right? Vitamins, minerals. We can have that conversation. Again, still very neutral, but to 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 blanket statement and to food shame, that really is where the issue comes in at of like, we are creating an environment where people, because of the food shaming, people uh, end up in my office, whether it's for in, like uh, disordered eating or eating disorder, where they legitimately feel like they are a bad person because of what they're eating. And this is regardless of skin tone, socioeconomic status, where they came from, right? All of these people present to my office with the exact same struggle around like, how can I be a good person if I eat like this? How can I be a good person if I like food? Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's the bigger issue. I feel like I'm more on that side, what you just spoke of. Like, I'm more on the side of stop putting people down for um, making, I guess, adding moral value in the sense, like, if I want to have a donut with my coffee at a function, we shouldn't say, don't put, you know, like, shame on you, shame on you and food shame people. That side I understand more and I'm more comfortable with than the side of um, just eat whatever you want when you want. I guess it doesn't make sense. It may not make sense to someone that I just said that, but in my mind, I see it. I don't know. I see it that way. No, I understand. You're seeing it as like, if that's the only guiding principle we have, right? Because you can see it within the context of like, of course I had this donut, but that's not the only food decision I made over the course of the day. Right. right. Like you and I both have that understanding. And I think as if someone's working with a non-diet dietitian, we're, they're also going to gain that understanding. But if that's if that's the only post we ever see, then it becomes really easy to divorce those two ideas where you say, well, I can't get with that, even though in reality you do. Right. In reality, you can understand like, well, of course you can have, you know, whatever that thing is whenever you, you know. Right. Like, of course you can do that. You're an adult. You can make those decisions for yourself. Also, let's bring back in here. Okay, let's not forget about our fruits, our vegetables, whatever. Right. Like at no point in time did I just throw my whole degree away and say nary a fruit and vegetable. Like I would never, ever do that. Of course, I want you to have fruits and vegetables. I just want you to have them on your own terms. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, what I was going to say, too, is, you know, thinking about the majority of patients that I see that do have diabetes, you know, I'm finding it's not even really necessarily society that I'm hearing them label food as good or bad as it's mostly from their primary care provider. Like, oh, you know, don't don't eat bananas, don't eat the donut. But, you know, when they come to me, I'm just like, okay, well, food is not bad. Food is not good. I'm sorry. Food does not have a higher level of thinking to say that they are good or bad. If you do want this donut, this is how we're going to rearrange your carbohydrate intake for the day. This is how we're going to ensure that like, okay, if you're going to eat that donut you want with your coffee, all right, then next meal, what are you going to do for that? Let's incorporate some nutrients in it. But I just, again, you know, as I was saying, it wasn't until speaking with you that the whole entire enlightenment process of what the anti-ADD movement is all about because I don't I don't see that at all on social media. I look at it, I'm like, well, what is it? Like, what is it portraying? So I think I say that all to say, 
that I guess the conversations, and I'm glad that Mikey wrote that article because the conversations are eliciting more and more conversations. It's like a cascade effect. It's a triggering process to really understand what the anti-diet diet movement is about. It's not just about, you know, the skinny uh, European looking dietitian who puts themselves on a diet, but everyone lives in a different body. Some people may be a little more plump, yet their whole entire metabolic profile is better than mine. I bet I'm telling you, there's some large people with much better blood pressure than I have. And I'm so glad for you. Also, you still don't owe me health. You don't have to perform health for me, right? That that's a whole other podcast about the good fat trope, right? Just had that conversation with a particular client of mine, like what it means to be a good fat person. Like you don't have to be a good fat person, but like there's a whole conversation that we can have around what it means to just allow someone to exist in their body and choose to seek out health however they choose to do that. Like that's my job is to help you figure out how you want to seek that out. And then I'm going to champion you along the way. And if my client wants to have a coffee and donut for breakfast, let's do it. And then let's kind of lean back and say, okay, but did you feel good after that? Maybe we needed an extra something because you probably got really hungry afterwards because you didn't have any any protein in that. Maybe we should add some protein with that, right? It's not that you can't have the donut. It's just you got to fill that out so you stay nourished longer. And, and that's really the conversation that we're having, right? Not just like, have all the donuts you want. Right. I, what's a donut, right? And we can have a whole conversation on the fact that we've completely removed uh, most cultural food in the context. One of my favorite things to do is to talk about people's cultural food because that's what's important to them. I want them to get back to their own culture. That is how you are going to celebrate yourself. Well, Christina, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You enlightened me so much and gave me just different perspectives of this ADD movement. So where can people find you on social media if they're looking for you? I'm on the internet. You can find me on Instagram as Encouraging Dietitian or on Twitter at, uh, at Encouraging RD. And my podcast is called Intuitive Eating for the Culture. And we'll definitely make sure to link all of that in our show notes. So guys, thank you very much for listening. As usual, remember to comment, like, subscribe, and to share this podcast episode specifically with your friends or your family members that may be struggling with good food versus the bad food mentality. Until next week. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone.